Hey, everybody, it's Scott Burnside back with another episode of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And as always, my partner in crime, Pierre Lebrun in Toronto. And today, joining us now, with this all due respect to you, Pierre, and, and all the people in Toronto uh, who often feel that they're at the epicenter of the hockey universe, today we have Aaron Portsline, our man in Columbus. And I think it's pretty fair to say that there isn't a bigger city or a a city more under the microscope in the hockey world than Columbus and the Columbus Blue Jackets. Aaron Portsline, thanks for hanging out with now pretty busy 24, 48 hours for you. Well, it's always going to be with you guys. It would be nice if they would spread these stories out a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) By by the way, uh, from here on forth, I I believe we have to refer to Aaron as man of the people. Oh boy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. That could have been much worse, but something like that seemed inevitable yesterday. I, I, I was wondering i was wondering if you were about that we were about to have a larry brooks john tortorella moment with uh, with aaron port slide but but just when it was starting to get a little tense uh john tortorella reined it in there so that's uh that was interesting yes yeah. rarely do cooler heads prevail but they did <laughs> well, let's let's uh, Aaron. Let's bring people up to speed. Obviously, uh, the news of this, uh, the latter part of this week, of course, the announcement from the Columbus Blue Jackets said netminder Sergei Bobrovsky would not accompany the team to Nashville. That there had been an incident after the team's loss in Tampa, um, and that he was not going to join the team. And uh, you know, earlier today. It, Sergei Bobrovsky rejoined the team on the ice and spoke to reporters. And I know, Pierre, you talked to Yarmo Kekalainen, and the GM, and who uh, declared the matter uh, dealt with and that they were moving forward. Aaron, what's uh, maybe bring us up to speed and, and, and what's your, your take on how this all unfolded? Yeah, so, I mean, it, I think the first thing that really stands out to me is that this had to be something more than a player losing his temper. This had to be something more than players uh, having a confrontation in the dressing room. That stuff happens. That's heated battle stuff. It had to be something more than the player and the coach trading, um, you know, words. It, I, it, for the team to step out and not just discipline the player, but publicly discipline the player, and to use the word incident in a press release, it clearly what happened, and we don't have it nailed down exactly what happened. It, had something to do with Sergei Bobrovsky's response to losing to Tampa Bay and getting pulled from that game in the third period down 4-0. Um, but so he was kept away from the team yesterday when they played Nashville here in Columbus. And then so the, the story continued to unfold this morning where Sergei Bobrovsky arrived at the rink around 10.50. Um, a meeting was held with the Blue Jackets, the entire team, management, players, coaches, uh, beginning at 11, and then it morphed into a players-only meeting where uh, the quote that seemed to surface a lot from people was that the air was cleared. Um, so I, I, whatever Sergei Bobrovsky did after that game in Tampa, I don't think it was just the coach not liking it or management not liking it. Clearly some players didn't like it either. Um, but he came on, when practice started, we thought, oh boy, here we go, because uh, Jonas Corposalo and, and J.F. Barube were the two goaltenders on the ice. No Bob. So maybe the meeting didn't go well. And then three minutes into practice, Bobrovsky skated onto the ice, gave a fist bump to Barube, and Barube headed off the ice and back to minor league Cleveland. So the reason Bobrovsky was late is the meeting ran late. It takes time for goalies to get their gear on. Um, Yarmo Kekalainen saying that things uh, have been patched up and they move forward. I'm not sure I wholly believe that, but uh, Sergei Bobrovsky said essentially the same thing today. He apologized to the team, the city, the fans, all of the people he needed to apologize and and said that he was out of line and he accepts uh, responsibility for that and plans now to, to be the goalie and the player that he's always been for this organization. And I guess, Aaron, I mean, for, for a lot of fans who are listening in who don't follow the Blue Jackets and basically saw the headlines yesterday and and really didn't follow the preamble to uh <laughs> to, to yesterday in terms of from really the summer on right um right i mean i mean the, the, not to say that necessarily ev- everything from last summer 
was leading to what happened this week. Obviously, what happened this week could have been avoided uh, on Sergei Bobrovsky's part. But the reality is, this is not an isolated event in the sense that Sergei Bobrovsky's future with that franchise is was always going to be bubbling to the surface at some point this year. Yeah, and in a sense, I, I mean, not to be too cynical here, but I'm frankly impressed that with Bob in the in the situation he's in, Bobrovsky that is, and with the situation with Panarin that they have sort of kept it together, played pretty darn well. They say still think they could play better, but mm-hmm. they're right they're right there in the metro. They've kept it together. But this yeah, this this is actually almost two years plus, I think, in the making where, you know, Bob doesn't like to hear about his playoff struggles. He doesn't. He he doesn't um I don't think he he's even willing to process that or acknowledge that. And he has taken offense to how the team has sort of not not shied away from discussing it at times, like trying to put it out there in the open and say yeah, it's it, it's futile to say that he's been as good in the playoffs in the regular season. He hasn't been. And that's been a big he has been a big look. Look, let me back up for a half second. He is a huge reason that this team is even respectable right now. And so it almost seems unfair at times, but I think it's accurate to say he's also a big reason. His struggles are a big reason this team has and hasn't ever gotten out of the first round. And so there's been some, as Ken Hitchcock likes to say, some debris there in the relationship. <laughs> and Bob's statements the day before camp started this year took a lot of people aback, pissed a lot of people off in the organization, and it has been a rocky road ever since. So. In a way, I guess I'm surprised it's taken this long to come to the service. Well, it, I, I, let me ask both you guys because I'm curious about how you feel this plays out. And, and I, you know, we broaden the context a little bit, and it's, you know, it's not this, that long ago that Pierre and I and Sean Shapiro were breaking down Jim Light's uh, tearing apart of of Tyler Sagan and, and Jamie Benn, and, and lo and behold, Tyler Sagan has played his best hockey of the season, and the and the teams in uh, in a playoff spot. Now, whether you can draw a line from A to B or not, who knows? But uh, I'm curious, Pierre. Let's start with you. Do you see this kind of incident with Sergei Bobrovsky? Does it push the team one way or the other on that line? On you know, what do you do with Sergei Bobrovsky? Understanding that he's likely going to be departing as an unrestricted free agent in the summer, do you do do you think Yarmo Kekalainen sees this as listen? I'm I I think I need to do something sooner than later to to deal with this this issue and maybe maximize returns for a for a um, you know a Vezina Trophy quality netminder. Now he, he is this season at a 906 save percentage, so it's been there have been some ups and downs uh, in terms of a save percentage for the Blue Jackets. But do you think this incident changes how Yermo Kekalainen deals with Bobrovsky between now and the trade deadline, or are they I, 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 mutually exclusive? Well, I I don't think it matters what Yarmo Kekalinen really wants to do because Sergey Bobrovsky controls all. <laughs> right. I mean, he's yeah, got sure. the full the full no trade and the full no move. I mean, I, I mean, I say it doesn't matter what what Yarmo wants. Of course, it does. But at the end of the day, um, Sergey Bobrovsky is well within his rights to just say, you know what, I'm just going to play out this year, do my best for this team, play out this year, and then uh, you know probably hit the market. That's his right. That is his CBA right, as per uh, the clause in his contract that gives him a full no trade. Now, I was asked this yesterday at TSN. You know, why would why wouldn't he want to wave after what transpired here this week? I, you know, Aaron's closer to it than me, obviously. But all along, I was told by, by people that uh, Sergey Bobrovsky would would never have any intention to wave. So, whether or not that changes, I guess we'll see. Aaron, what do you think? Like, does does it change it for you? You, Pierre's right. I mean, you're there every day. Do do you think this changes how how things unfold between now and the trade deadline? Given that Bobrovsky controls his fate. Well, I, I, and this is, you know, this is stepping a little bit toward conjecture, but I, I don't think it's wrong to entirely wonder if this is not an attempt to change the dynamic and perhaps change the player's willingness to waive that no-move clause. Is that what's behind this? We hear often about players selling the water to get themselves traded out of town. 
I don't. I. I mean, it's been my understanding all along that the Blue Jackets had planned to keep Bobrovsky past the trade deadline because they don't have another goalie ready to be uh, a difference maker in the playoffs, and maybe they give Bobrovsky one more crack at the postseason. Maybe there's frustration on their part that he is not willing to waive the no move clause. Maybe this expedites things a little bit. Look, I have to say this, not shying away from anything here. The relationship between this club and the agent for Sergei Bobrovsky, Paul Theofanis, has been toxic. It has always been worse than the relationship between Bobrovsky and the team. The team and the player have actually gotten along pretty well. Uh, typically, before recent days, Bobrovsky has been a very low-maintenance player for them. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's crazy to wonder if this team has grown frustrated by not being able to cash in on one of its big pieces. It is hard for small market teams to let big time players walk away by free agency. Uh, the Islanders are feeling it now with Tavares. Maybe they could have handled that differently. Columbus, as Pierre has said, doesn't have the flexibility, certainly, that the Islanders did. Um, but I think all of those matters should be should be taken into account. It's it, Pierre. Let me and it, for me, it's been fascinating to watch this unfold. And, and we've been talking about it since training camp. In fact, we had Aaron on one of the first ever two man advantage podcasts because we knew that with both Sergey Bobrovsky and Artemi Panarin headed towards unrestricted free agency potentially at the end of this season, and neither one looking like the that they were in any hurry to sign an extension with the Blue Jackets, that this was going to be an ongoing story. And with the Blue Jackets, as Aaron mentioned, you know, they're right now, they're in third place in the Metropolitan Division. They're a point behind Pittsburgh for second place. Um, They are five back of of Washington, but, you know, pretty comfortably ensconced in a playoff spot right now. But, But I think it's been fascinating to watch in Columbus how, there is a divide between Bobrovsky and Panarin, at least from the outside, in terms of the, the perception and how the community is is dealing with this. In recent days, we've seen a billboard put up in Columbus uh, promising Panarin free vodka for life from a local distillery. I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't see a billboard for you, Aaron, but that's another story. And and then another billboard I see uh, on Twitter, thank, thank goodness for social media, promising free dental work for our Timmy Panarin for life if he if he stays in Columbus. And it, so I'll ask you as a question: Do you do you see that there is a there is a a, a yin and yang or a, a great divide in terms of when you look at the two important pieces that could be leaving this franchise? That there is a different view of Panarin than there is of, of Brodsky. Um, well, I, we were joking yesterday that where the hell is the billboard for Bob? And maybe that's what's behind all of this. <laughs> like, do I not get anything free? I've been here longer than Panarin. And this guy's getting all the all the grift on his way out of the town. Um, yeah, I I think people. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's there's been a, a there there is it with this fan base a bit of resignation. Uh, sometimes when you think of all the players that have come through here, how many players have asked uh, to be traded? Which is funny because so many guys really like it here and stay here, but they've had some famous uh, Jeff Carter. Um, Adam Foote, Rick Nash, some prominent guys that have left town in difficult way. I think people here are almost immune to it a little bit. I think there's an appreciation um, maybe more for Panarin, who's been nothing but an elite-level player, and I think has handled this situation. It'll be judged differently when it comes to a head, certainly, but I think people feel like he's handled the situation um, professionally where it is his right to decide where he wants to play on July 1st. He hasn't told them that he's absolutely not going to sign here. Um, I think the feeling with most people is that he sees Columbus as a girlfriend, but not a wife necessarily, but he doesn't dislike it, and he's done nothing to speak ill of the city i think i think there's a little more frustration with bob but i don't even know if it's really about the specifics of his contract because frankly not a lot of that has been out it's been so so private because theophanis is not his agent's not done interviews but there are there is frustration with bob um, 
just purely based upon the playoffs and and the the frust- he has sort of become the poster child of the frustration that the fans feel for this team making it to the playoffs but never never winning a series, never getting out of the first round. So I think he's judged differently, but I think that's the reason why, which that's not that has nothing to do with the contract negotiations or the or the situation at all. It just has to do with how each player's viewed. Here, do you think it changes? I, and I thought you made an interesting point in in one of your your notebook pieces, and and I think people sometimes forget this that you know there if Yarmulkekalainen was able to find a way to move those assets um, rather than see them both walk away on July first and and not get anything back. That you you also have to look at it as if if you. If you hold the Ford, if you if the status quo maintains and those players stay with the Blue Jackets past the trade deadline, they go to the playoffs. Maybe they have a long run. Maybe they don't. Um, but it's almost like they've acquired rental players, even if they're their own rental players. If I'm if I'm right. paraphrasing <clears throat> correctly, but does it does it add a little bit to you know if if Jarmo Kekalainen wanted to do something else at the trade deadline to bolster his team's chances of winning a first ever playoff round? Does it hamper him knowing that, geez, I, I have these two guys already who may leave July 1st. Uh, I don't want to spend any more assets on a pure rental or sort of box him into a corner. To, if he has, if he wants to make another deal at the deadline, it has to be somebody with term and, that can stay with the team. Or how do you think it, how do you think that plays out? Yeah. Well, the reason I mentioned that again this week is because it's something that uh, I quoted Yarmo talking about earlier this season when the Blue Jackets were in Toronto and, he himself, unsolicited, brought up the idea of the of the own rental, and and weighing weighing what he could get offered near the deadline for for I think in particular we were talking about Panarin at the time, but weighing what he would get offered for Panarin versus what he believed Panarin would give them for their first you know possibly their first ever playoff series win you know if they get that far, and it's an interesting thing to think about, and it doesn't have an easy answer. Um, last year, and people forget this because it, you know it's not headline grabbing news. But uh, in the midst of everything that went down at the trade deadline last year, uh, Kate Lennon ended up turning down whatever was the best offer for Jack Johnson, a pending UFA, and kept him uh, because the Jackets were again headed to the playoffs, and he made the determination that the offers he got that day paled in comparison to what Jack Johnson could deliver over the next or the final two months of the year even if they couldn't end up resigning him. And, and obviously they didn't. He's, he's in Pittsburgh now. But so, and, and I don't mind that thinking when you think you have a shot because I, I think it's, it's, it's a lot more NFL-like than hockey-like. But I think in the salary cap world, I think that teams need to think about this more and more, uh, about the idea that it's not losing a player for nothing all the time if it creates a cap room that you can then turn around and, and, and fill on, on, you know, in the offseason. So I think, I, I think that's what... And again, as Aaron well knows, is going to have to judge with Panarin in particular. I think Bobrovsky's a whole different kettle of fish. But with Panarin in particular, because I think the offers will be pretty sexy for him, they're still going to have to judge that against what if this is the year we finally go deep? And and Panarin would be at the heart of that. So I, it's a tough call. Aaron, like where, where do you think this team is at? I mean, whether they... You know the the metro is 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 pretty tight, uh, but let's say just for argument's sake, they end up playing Pittsburgh again. That would be, if I'm not mistaken, be the third time they played them in the last four or five years. Right? Is is this team as it's constituted now? Uh, you know, could they could they beat a, a Pittsburgh team that is really? We're actually going to hear from assistant GM Bill Guerin in the second segment of this podcast, but. Um, you know, that Penguin team has is, is really started to cook and Matt Murray's back and playing like we saw him play when they won back-to-back cups in 16 and 17. Is this, it could, do you, where do you see this Columbus team at in, in terms of being able to, to get out of the first round for the first time in franchise history? Yeah, as presently constructed, not to be, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's the greatest upset ever if it happened, but I, I don't think many people would favor them against Washington, Pittsburgh, or Tampa Bay right now. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, they, they had Washington right where they wanted them last year, uh, up 2-0 after two wins in Washington coming home and let that one slip away. Um, they, this team this year has played 
okay, but when they've played against the top teams in the uh, the current playoff teams, they're three and six. They're one in their one of their last six. Um, I, I I think there's a clear divide between them and Pittsburgh, Washington, Tampa, and probably put Toronto in there as well. Um, I think they need help as presently constructed to hang with those teams. Like for me, I look at them and I think you don't have the star power to play against them and you have a distinct weakness down the middle of the ice, right? So either you have to have depth of scoring in four lines that just really rock and roll and you have to play at a certain pace that is really difficult for Pittsburgh or Washington, Toronto, Tampa. I mean, I'm talking physical, the way that they played a few years ago when they robbed a lot, robbed a lot of teams the wrong way. I haven't seen either of those things. Like the secondary scoring hasn't been there. There's a lot of nights when they when they don't bring the funk like they used to. Um, so right now, I, I, being honest, I have a hard time looking at this team and thinking that they're going to get out of the first round if, if they're playing one of those teams, uh, which it seems likely they would be. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I want to uh, I want to shift gears though because uh, it's fascinating to see how this plays out in the in the next uh, month or so before the trade deadline. Um, but uh, Aaron, you mentioned Rick Nash in in passing um, early in this conversation, and the other you know, one of the I I don't know whether it's news, maybe it's not as surprising, but. Um, Pierre, let's start with you. Uh, today also brought the formal news that Rick Nash was going to retire uh, from playing in the NHL. I think some teams had been you know, keeping in touch with um, the, the former Columbus Blue Jacket and New York Ranger wingers, just seeing where he was at in terms of his health. But formally announced through his agent, Joe Resnick, today that um, he would be retiring. And I, I'll, we'll circle back and I'll ask the same thing of Aaron. But let's start with you, Pierre. When you think of Rick Nash, what do you think of him? What, when you hear the news today that, that he is going to retire, what, what comes to mind for you? Team Canada, as I tweeted, Rick Nash was such an incredible player on their international stage, uh, two-time Olympic gold medalist, but world championships, world juniors. And you could tell when you talked to Rick Nash, the look on his face, the expression would change from, you know, a routine conversation to, oh, let's talk Team Canada. And just, he would start beaming. And he played that way. Rick Nash played his best hockey of his life playing for Canada. And I covered a lot of those games. And, uh, and the, so that's what I think, how amazing he, he was um, uh, playing for his country. And which brings me to some of the teams that I know that had showed interest in him, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs being among them. Mike Babcock, who, of course, coached him in, those two, uh, in two of those Olympics, um, had kept in touch with Rick Nash, is my understanding. And the Leafs, I think, w- would have been in there had Rick Nash wanted to come back, although as, as Aaron reported himself on his Twitter feed, seemed like Columbus certainly would have had a, an advantage over almost everyone given where uh, Rick uh, obviously lives. Aaron, you've, I mean, you've known Rick Nash since he was, he was a boy, and yeah. I wonder, what, what do you think his legacy is with that franchise um, specifically, and maybe bigger picture, what his his legacy is as a you know, former top pick, and and as Pierre uh, pointed out, a, a high level international competitor. What what do you think of when you think of Rick Nash? You know, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating topic to me because because he was such a as Pierre said, such a big part of Team Canada and such a a rock star north of the border. Here in Columbus, he almost transcended. I mean, he is, he almost transcended all of that in the sense that he is this city's greatest pro athlete. And I think remains that and probably will for a while, just his presence. I'm always amazed at 18 year old kids who feel, who, who never come into a situation unprepared for it. Like that, that always amazes me. And Rick was always sort of ready for the moment on and off the ice. He shouldered the load here uh, with teams that you just knew before the season started weren't even close to competitive and was a great player on a team that was so short of talent that he was the focal point every night. He was keyed keyed in on every night and still produced. And I look at it this way, like he, he had such a big presence here 
and create and, and so many people here have an emotional attachment to that player that even the fact that he ultimately requested to be traded when he felt he couldn't win here, this was back in 12, uh, 11, 12, people in this town who take that stuff personally still have enough room there with all of their feelings about Rick Nash to remember him really fondly. And the one thing that I was hit with um, overwhelmingly today when the news came out that he had retired was, are they going to retire his number? And I, I think mm. I think people want to see that 61 in the rafters here. Uh, did he ever win a playoff series? No. Uh, did did they did they achieve greatness here? No, they did not. But I, I think the way that that kid handled himself in really difficult times for the better part of a decade uh, earned for him what is and will always be in this city just an immense amount of respect. And 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 I want to add that, and it's easy for me to say. But I'm really happy that he retired. It, 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 I have yes. to say that it, that it scared me that there was even a thought that he would wait this out and maybe come back and play. I mean, given yeah. the concussions that he had and what we know uh, about concussions more and more, I, I just I really did not want to see Rick back on the ice. And I yeah. know it it pains him. And the reason it pains Rick Nash is that. Uh, despite all his international glory, he never won a Stanley Cup, and he would have right. loved to have done that in Boston at the end, and and that would have really, I mean, that's the toughest thing I'm sure for him today. In what I'm told was a very emotional day for him, is that he retires without a cup. Like by the way, a lot of great players do, but but that would have been certainly the the hardest part in finally deciding to cut the cord here. Yeah, and, and I I I've been in contact with him. Uh, not overwhelmingly or overbearingly, I should say, but but just sort of checking in now and then to see where he's at. And the most recent correspondent was a, a few days ago where it, he made it pretty clear that that he was still struggling. And mm. I, I, you know, I, we try not to in, to invoke our own feelings in this too often, but I maybe stepped out of line and I apologize in advance. I said, Rick, I, you know, I don't, I, I, you know, I won't feel, I, I'll feel pretty happy being really honest with you if you make the decision here and don't don't play we're talking right. almost a year since his 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 concussion and if mm-hmm. he's still not right i i just can't imagine anybody close to him that would support him putting the gear back on and putting himself back in jeopardy again mm-hmm. yeah well yeah. said yeah, good stuff. Um, Aaron, I, I do want to say, and you, you tweeted this uh, just before we started to tape this, and so before we, we let you get back to your busy day in Columbus, sure. um, again, also overshadowed by all of the events happening, there's another, and we talk about character people, when you talk about people who who uh, are are more than hockey players, they're, they're part of the fabric of, of the communities in which they play and which they live, and I don't think anyone fits that bill any better than current captain and Nick Foligno and and he has was away with the from the team for a short period of time with uh, dealing with uh, some ongoing medical issues with his daughter and I wonder maybe when you think of Nick Foligno and the fact that he is now returning to the team I know it's been an emotional um, period of time with him and and that's sort of been shared with the team with the community which I I, I think is I, I think that's uh, that's a pretty special thing yeah and and I think Nick has been sort of caught with between the um, wanting to to handle it and not not make it a big deal, and yet um, really feeling that that the arms of this city and of the, the guys in the room are, are are open and and ready to take him and his family. And there was a really really emotional scene out of nowhere at the end of the practice before um, Nick left to go to Boston with his family, where he. He pulled the team um, at the end of practice to, into the neutral zone and spoke to them for about a minute and a half. And I don't think I've ever seen a 25-man hug before, but the way that the players collapsed on him and engulfed him, um, he was pretty emotional coming off the ice from that practice. And they, they went to Boston. It's an absolutely terrifying thing to have a child that needs um, a heart surgery. And she's had at least a couple, few of them, and may need more. Um, she's five years old, and he took time not just for the 
surgery, but also for the recovery. So he was away from the team from the 30th uh, until last night, missed four games. And just to hear him talk about uh, being able to be around with his family during this this uh, time, but also to step back into his comfort zone and his family here, um, the quiet rink yesterday or two days ago when nobody was here, the first time that he skated since since he left. Um, and then to be been a noisy rink yesterday with all of the action and just how much that meant to him. And then another really touching moment for him uh, as they announced the starting lineup last night. And there's usually the, the appropriate applause for each player as they're announced. There was a roar when they announced Felino's name. Like, you think about all the stuff that was going on in Columbus yesterday with the team. And the people still remembered that and were waiting to to express themselves that way. And that blew him away. He was really, really emotional yesterday. Um, and I, it's just a, it's, it's one of the magical things about sports that people can, um, can provide that sort of uh, emotion and support, even to someone that they truly appreciate, but don't really know. Um, it feels really, it felt really genuine. And I know you really appreciate it because he, he went on, at length last night talking about how much, how much it meant to him to be back, but also to be uh, really taken care of by so many people in the city as they have been. And, and you know, Aaron, it, it must, it just hits home for me. I have, uh, you know, I have seven year old twins and a nine year old and just cannot imagine the strength that it would need uh, to go through what Nick Foligno and his wife are going through with their daughter, but also the perspective that he would have had this week and what we deem to be the biggest story in hockey this week, the Bobrovsky incident. Right. I mean, like, that's just hockey. That's not real life, right? I mean, correct. it's, it's, it's interesting to, to have the juxtaposition of all those events and the same team in the same week uh, yeah. in, terms of, in terms of what truly matters. Yeah, and I don't know if you guys could hear my voice cracking a little bit there too. Nick and I, I mean... <laughs> I, um, I'm proud, but it's also unfortunate to say that, that I can relate to what he's gone through because my daughter, Grace, was born with a congenital heart defect and had uh, her first open heart at five months, had another when she was ah. 14 years old. And it, it is um, the anxiety mm -hmm. going into something like that is intense. I have so much respect for him. And I've tried not to personalize this in any way in my writing, but I have so much respect for him. Because I don't know how he held it together and has been able to play knowing that all of this is coming. Because it, it can absolutely sidetrack your life with mm -hmm. the anxiety and the fear and, and all of the worry and all of that dread. Um, and sometimes the recovery is, is more nerve-wracking than the anxiety. The fact that he has been able to play and be competitive and be, be a really good player for the Blue Jackets this year, to be a captain... What a what that's an amazing feat uh, to me more than anything that that he could do just simply and alone as a, as a player. It's incredible. Yeah, that's good. Hey, well, great stuff, Marin. It's uh, it's so good to have you aboard, and uh, so good to have you aboard on in, in the athletic. So we don't have a twenty three man hug, but today you got a you got a two man hug from Pierre oh, and I. So you guys are unbelievable. Well, it's great to be with you. <laughs> Yeah, so thanks for hanging out with us, and we'll uh, we'll definitely be touching base, I'm sure, as we get closer to the trade deadline. But uh, keep up the good work, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Yeah, well, awesome, guys. Thanks for having me. I will see you on the, the Grand Tour here. All right. Sounds good. See you, buddy. Thanks, guys. See ya. All right, everybody, as promised, back for the second segment, Two Men Advantage, the podcast. Uh, Pierre, uh, we're going to hear from Bill Guerin in a few minutes, but uh, let's see. Uh, I got a couple of things that I would like to uh, to touch base with you. Uh, first of all, like, how upset were you uh, when the last man standing names were announced for the All-Star Game? Did you even know there was such a thing? <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. Uh, I have no idea what that thing is i have no idea who and how the players are being selected my, my level of caring on all-star is so low uh like it, like i have i know nothing it, it's, I know. It's, it's so much fun i know you laugh every year where, i mean i still go to all-star of course because i'm i'm a hypocrite but i you know oh, well, you get paid you, too right so well i get paid too and the access is great to the players and the supporting yeah, meetings, so it's my job to be there 
But I know that you laugh so hard every year when the skills competition starts. And people around me think I'm kidding. I literally do not know, understand what's going on. <laughs> no, I know. No one can. I, I, I mean, I've covered, I mean, off the top of my head, I don't know, 15 all-star games. I don't even know. And throughout the various formats, every time the skills competition, like, and, and how many have I sat beside you? We, like, we look at each other like, what is that? And how? And then there's like <laughs> scoring at the end, right? You look at the scoreboard and there's some sort of, you know, it's like uh, quantum physics because at the end of it, there's a, there's a winner. And it's like, well, okay, I'm not sure how oh we got there. Uh, oh, my but goodness. But I did laugh. And I was with you. I was like, what is a last man? I didn't even know what, what that was. So anyway, well, anyway, I, they I, were I, I, I got so tired of the, con- the so-called controversy about who got selected and not selected a couple of weeks ago that I finally, I, I had to tweet about it. And, and I said, I said it, 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 and I'll just paraphrase it, but it just completely stuns me every year and confuses me the level of, of attention and angst that, the, that it gets, you know, who got picked and who didn't. When you compare it to when the actual event comes around, no one cares. No one watches. Like, yeah. so <laughs> I don't understand it becomes this like three, four week story. Who's in, who's out. But then the actual weekend rolls around and it's like most adult hockey fans. I'll say adult because I think kids do then. Yeah. But but the majority of adult hockey fans literally tune out. So <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I know. It won't stop us from wagering on, uh, on the different uh, divisional teams when we get to San Jose. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I, I, look, so on to more important news, and I and uh, you were part of the process as as was I over the the um, previous few days, uh, as uh, you and Craig Custins and Eric Hatchuk and Tom Lashishin and uh, I hope I haven't left anyone out uh, out. Uh, we put together sort of shadow rosters for uh, a potential World Cup of Hockey and what that might look like, and and part of the reason that it, it has it, it has meaning. I think is that as we speak now, the National Hockey League and the National Hockey League Players Association are, are really starting to dip their toe into coming to grips with the potential end of the CBA or extending it or how, how we might continue labor peace and, and the World Cup of Hockey is tied together with that. And um, you and I both know it's fine. I ended up talking to Bill Daly the uh, deputy commissioner earlier today for um, part of a series of stories we're working on, on looking at concussions. And we were talking about the concussion spotting process, but he was in Las Vegas uh, when we spoke and coming off some talks with the NHLPA, which he um, said went uh, well enough that they've scheduled more talks. And I know you were mm-hmm. very keyed in with this and I wonder like, maybe broadly it, you know, maybe I just want it to be so. But do you get a sense this time around that there is more optimism? And does this, you know, these initial meetings and, and some of the positive, um, at least uh, um, positive vibe coming out of it, um, is it is it meaningful? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think that I think you have to separate two different things here. I mean, they're meeting largely because of the World Cup of Hockey, because right. they're running out of time to. If you're going to have a World Cup of Hockey in September 2020, I'm pretty sure we're in January 2019, correct? So that's a pretty large-scale event that the NHLPA and the NHL pull off together. And basically, you really you really cannot go past January or at least past mid-February and not have a decision on that. You need time to, to pull this event together. So, so it's forcing both sides in a room. And so they met again this week uh, for the first time since last month. And they're going to meet again next week, as you know, Scotty. The fact that they're meeting next week means that yesterday's meeting went well enough, that it was positive enough, that they have more to talk about. But the reason I wanted to separate the, the, my two answers is that I, I, I don't know if I'm that confident that they can resolve this in time to, to salvage the World Cup of Hockey. I am, however, confident that I, I, I think for the first time in, in a long, long time, I, I think we might have labor peace at some point here. Now, whether it's going to come in the form of both sides deciding not to opt out for 2020 and allowing the current document to run its course through 2022, that would be one way of doing it. And of course, the other way we're doing it is at some point over the next couple of years to to actually extend the CBA or, or agree to a new CBA without 
blood being spilled. I don't know why I think this, and I can guarantee you that for the first time since I've covered the NHL in the last 24 years, I'm, it's the first time that I have a hint of optimism um, in my heart about both sides actually figuring this out, but I could be completely wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, I mean, I, I think it will be a tremendous waste if the NHL and the players can't find a way to uh, get their act together and have a World Cup of Hockey in 2020, right? I mean, it's, it's a it's a tournament that if you well, if you believe in it, right? If you believe that it's a meaningful tournament, and there are some who don't, and you know, I, I think that's fair. But for a tournament that you know has basically been thrown into a closet for you know long periods of time after it became the uh, the World Cup of Hockey starting in 1996. Um, I, I thought it was, I, I enjoyed the tournament in 2016 in Toronto. Um, I thought there were ways that, you know, things could have done been done better. They certainly had too many exhibition games and uh, there were, I think there were tweaks, but I think it's, it, the framework work was there for a really important best on best mm-hmm. tournament. And I don't think you can have, I, I think it's fine to have them, you know, even if you're going to go to the Olympics, I think having one of those every two years, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And, and I think hockey fans deserve that kind of thing. But if you're not going to have it in 2020, I mean, what, I just think it'll be such a colossal waste, but you're right. It's they, they have, you know, time is of the essence to get it done. So, yeah. Um, uh, so I, and we've kicked around the the idea: should you have a team North America? All those things. I, I want to ask you just before we move on: what, what would you, in your best case scenario, like? Are, are, do we have it back in one city? Do you think there should be a European, you know, sort of round robin? How do you? What, what if you blue skied it and you were in charge? And and goodness knows you should probably be in charge of some of these things. Uh, what would you? <laughs> What, what what are a couple of things that you'd love to see in, 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 if you were in charge of 2020 World Cup of Hockey, what, how, what, what would you see? What would we see from the LeBron version? Well, first of all, if I was in charge of it, the tournament would be held mid-season instead of the All-Star break when the <laughs> yeah, players are, are in peak physical game shape as opposed to in September. But I know the owners would never go for that. Uh, in other words, I would, I would hold it at the same time of the, in the season when you would have an Olympics. Um, right. Gotcha. That, that's what that's when I would have the World Cup. As amazing as Team North America was, and by the way, I love how and Craig Custon said that great story, uh, oral history of Team North America. It is, by the way, it is Team Europe that made it to the final against Canada, not Team North America, right? I'm just checking. Yeah, I know. Okay, okay, I'm just checking. <laughs> um, I, you know, as much as it was so amazing to watch those kids play and the memories that we have from it. I think what makes it special is that you make it a one-off. Like I, I think you got to be careful that if the World Cup returns, that that you don't waste the, that sentiment by bringing it back and people saying, "Oh, it's not as fun now." I first of all, it was such a special group of young players. When you think of Connor McDavid and uh, you know Austin Matthews and Johnny Goudreau and Jack Eichel, that's almost you know, generate generational, you're not getting that every, every four years. So from that perspective, that's, and it's also the first time they did it. But to me, if you're really going to, you know, make it legitimate, the return of the world cup on a natural cycle, best on best, you have to go back to a more traditional field. You have to say, this is, this is for the big one. This is to say, this is for the best. This is for best on best the country that can claim with its best pros that they are the best in the world. You can't have two gimmick entries next time, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. And I I think so. And I think really when you go back to when they announced the 2016 World Cup of Hockey, I think that that seemed to be an underlying big picture plan when you, you if I think back to Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and and Donald Fear and uh, talking about it I think that was the plan that you that they would use 16 as a catapult to back right. into basically an Olympic style tournament so you would see a team I, I, from I'm Germany sorry to, 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 to answer your question which as usual was long um, I, I I think I would hold it in Europe this time although I have a feeling it's probably it'll probably end up in the states which is fine and the one place it can't be is in Canada it, at some point, if you keep holding the World Cup in Canada, it becomes a Canada Cup again. So, so you do, <laughs> you do, you do yeah. have to move it around. And uh, I'd like to see it in Europe. I, again, we're talking about legitimacy and how people feel about it. 
And again, given the growth, you know, just saw Finland winning the World Juniors deservedly. And Finland, to me, the best story in hockey right now, this small country that is producing more players per capita, uh, more NHL players per capita than any other country. Why not reward Finland? Why not have the next World Cup in Helsinki and Turku? You know, twin uh, both those cities in, in, in Finland. I think it would be tremendous. Yeah. No, and I think, you know what, that would be a bold thing and because it, it would, I wonder how it would affect television ratings, all those kinds of things that are, you know, that are important because it's a moneymaker for both the NHL and the NHLPA, right? Like they split the money. They don't have to worry about the IOC. They don't have to worry about, you know, you know, the double IHF plays a, a much more um, modest role uh, in, in a World Cup of Hockey. Um but I, I'm with you, and and whether you do it all in Finland or if you let's say you wanted to have, you know, Pool A plays in Helsinki and Pool B plays in Stockholm, and you have the you have the best two out of three final in London at the O2 or wherever you want to do it. I, I think it would be bold to do that. Uh, I, I it would be. I'll be surprised if they go that direction. I think you're, you know, the safe bet is to go somewhere in the United States. Maybe it's in Pittsburgh because of their nice facilities up in Cranberry. Maybe it's in Washington. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think a bold move would be to go to Europe. So, by the way, I would refrain from further commenting on the World Cup or re- referencing the World Cup as a moneymaker for the league and the players. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yes, they, yes, they control the event, and yes, whatever profit comes out of that event goes in their pockets 50-50. But I think when I think moneymaker, I think of something that makes a lot of money. Uh, I'm not sure the <laughs> That's World a relative 20, thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure the World Cup in 2016 was a moneymaker. Yeah, true that, true that. No, uh, relative term there. Um, all right, so uh, I'm going to do a, a, it's a little bit of a stretch, but here's my segue into my conversation with assistant GM Bill Guerin, who two-time Stanley Cup winner, and also a member of the 1996 World uh, World Cup of Hockey champions from the United States. You remember that? Remember when they beat Canada? It was, uh, it was it was a very good final. Yes. It was epic. And speaking of all-star, uh, Chris Letang was one of the last men standing. However, they decided that he was added to the all-star team of the Pittsburgh Penguins. So there you go. I've all smashed that all together as a way of introducing my conversation with uh, assistant GM Bill Guerin of the Pittsburgh Penguins. All right, here we go. Special treat sitting, actually sitting very close <laughs> to Bill Guerin, maybe uncomfortably close to Bill Guerin, assistant GM of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, this is, I'm, in my visit, Bill, this is twice I've sat down with you in two different offices in two, two different buildings. So that suggests to me that you're really important and very powerful. Um, I, I like to think so, but it, that's not, to, not not the truth at all. I just have two offices, <laughs> but they're very fine offices, and um, it, it was, uh, it's always great to catch up with you. And I want to ask you about your job and what you're doing as assistant GM. But first, uh, it's not too long ago, a few days ago, you were in celebratory memory lane mode because the Penguins honored the 2009 Stanley Cup championship team, of which you were a part, and. I wonder what that was like for you. You had a weekend with guys came in from out of town, and and you, I assume it was a it was a, a fun time. What was what was that like to catch up with those guys? It was awesome. We had we had the best time. Um, you know, as, as usual, the Penguins put on a first class um, you know uh, weekend for us, and and everything was done very very well. Um, but just to be able to spend time with the really really special group of guys that um, you know I was lucky enough to be. Uh, to be on a, a very good hockey team with was was great. Um, you know, we were missing a couple guys like Flower and Max Talbot, but um, and Jordan Stahl. But you know what? It was you know we had a great great turnout and um, lots of fun. You know what? That that team was. Um, you know, it was. Uh, I don't want to. Say, I mean, yeah, I guess if you could say old school, but we we like to have a really good time, and there are a lot of characters on that team. So there's a lot of fun, a lot of a lot of jabbing each other back and forth, a lot of making fun of each other, and uh, it's kind of funny when you when time passes like that, and then you come back together. Everybody kind of falls back into their role, and um, you know, it's even like with the '95 team in Jersey. 
I go back and with those that group of guys, and I'm the young guy again. And you know, if somebody tells me to get him a beer, I got to go get him a beer. And like, so um, it was a, it was a great weekend. Great to great to have guys like uh, Hal Gill, Rob Scuderi, Mark Eaton, Phil Boucher back in town. It was awesome. So was there was there someone that you? Um, that you were you were particularly happy to catch up with again, or maybe someone that you were like, "Geez, I was I'm, I I missed that guy," or, or you know, was not to single one person out, but was there one that you're like, "Yeah, that was I'm really glad he was here." Yeah, I think you know what, um, you know, Craig Adams and I have become really good friends. It's always good catching up with him. Um, you know, Hal Gill, I was, we were all really happy that Hal came. You know, Hal's personality is as, it's as big as he is. And uh, he wasn't sure if he was going to make, make any of the weekend. Um, and it, uh, it, it turned out that he could make Sunday's game and Sunday night. So it was really good that he came. And, you know, he, he added his, uh, his personality to the party. It was, it was fun. But I, I, I guess I can't single one guy out. They're all, uh, they're all great guys. Great to have Eric Goddard come back. And, um, you know, he's out in, in uh, Vernon, B.C. now, so it's it, we don't get to see each other all that often. But, uh, you know, all the guys are great. So, when you first came here, like, do you remember sort of the moment you realized you were coming here and maybe what you expected and what, you know, because you played an important role on that, uh, that team, you know, the team that had lost to Detroit in the final the year before and, you know, when you're merging stars and Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. But what do you remember about your first sort of moments here and what was it like to fit into that group? You know what? Um, well, I, I guess I had been traded so many times before that I didn't have a hard time fitting in. I, I knew I knew the ropes by then. It just me. Um, lots of people want you. I think that's it. It's not that people don't want to get rid of you. It's right. you want people want you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it was. Um, it just felt right right away. Um, it was exactly what I guess I needed in my career at that time. I was an older guy. I was thirty eight, and. Um, so to, to come to a young team that was full of life, full of energy, they were really good. They had success the year before. Unfortunately, they lost in the in the in the finals. Um, but to come to this team and like you know what, I remember my first game. Um, you know we we had a, a, a face off at center ice, and Dan had put me out there with with uh, Sid and Gino, and you know. Uh, couple days before that i was you know on on probably the worst team in the league at the time and you know now i'm sitting here looking across the ice and there are my two line mates sydney crosby and evgeny malkin i'm like wow this is this is really taking a turn for the better and it, it just kept building and building and and the the players the guys on the team my teammates they they all they just injected so much like life into me and energy. I just felt like like uh, like reborn. It was it was awesome. It really was. So, fast forward now to your new role here. I mean, was there a moment as you know as you were winding towards the end of your playing career? Was there a moment where you were like, I I want to I want to do something like what you're doing now? Was there a moment where you were like, I think I could do this as opposed to coaching or whatever? Was there a moment with that you said, this is this is something that I, I think I would be good at and I would really like to learn. Yeah, I mean, I always had um, kind of just aspirations of staying in the game. Um, I, I don't think I don't think I could live my life without the game of hockey. And um, it's just been it's been part of me since, you know, I was I was a, a, a small child and, and I just I love it. And I wanted to be part of something where I could help build a team I knew I wanted to be involved in a team and you know but I needed uh you know when I when I decided to retire my first phone call was to my wife and you know hey look I, I think I'm done that's kind of what we talked about my second phone call was a Ray Shiro and to talk I wanted to talk about my future and come in and meet with Ray and he said you know we made a date I came in and we talked about a bunch of things, and he was fantastic. And he said, you know what, the first thing you need to do, though, is take a little time and be with your family and think about things. And um, so during that time, I, I, I took time off, but I also did some TV. I did some radio. I did some, you know, different things like that. I coached my son's team. Um, and it, it kind of, you know, let me 
explore other options. Um, and then, you know, eventually they, you know, I, I contacted Ray back and, you know, we made plans for me to kind of tail Tom Fitzgerald around and, and, you know, figure out this development thing that was kind of new and, and starting to, you know, uh, you know, get some traction around the league. And that really, uh, that really opened my eyes to everything that goes on behind the scenes. Like, you know, wow, I, I, I can't believe we just don't show up and play anymore. Like, there's actually a lot of work to be done here. Um, but I was, I was intrigued by it, and I was uh, really driven to, um, to learn everything I could from kind of the bottom up. I mean, I wouldn't say working in development is is going actually down to the mailroom, right. but like, like I I I wanted to learn everything the right way um, and work my way up. So if there was ever an opportunity for me to be a general manager, I would be ready to do it for quite a long time. Yeah. So well, let's run through. So the, right now the Penguins are headed out west. They're gone for. <laughs> like weeks now, right yeah. between now and bye week and, and All Star, what will you do? What's what 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 goes on behind the scenes that is part of your uh, your job description? What kind of stuff will you be doing? And and you know, run us through that. Well, today's a catch up day. I'm a little behind on some of my game reports, so I have to catch up on those. Um, and then uh, you know what I have to make certain calls to. Uh, you know different agents um i have to connect with my uh with my coach in wilkesbury clark donatelli to make sure everything's going well down there and we're ready for the weekend tomorrow i'll leave for an nhl game in in uh tampa um to scout and then i'll meet up with wilkesbury in charlotte on friday and saturday and then the following week we have um we have our amateur scouting meetings um, out in Arizona, so that'll be like four days of uh, four days of meetings. That's not a, that's not too much of a grind. That's actually a lot of fun when we get our staff together. And yeah. uh, but there's there's work to be done. And then uh, you know there, there's quite a bit of travel for me coming up. Uh, you know with the trade deadline coming up next month, uh, preparing for that. But there's there's always something. Um, you know with with uh, close to fifty players in our in our uh, organization somebody's probably unhappy at some point in time so you're always talking to agents you're always talking to coaches you're always trying to you know put fires out things like that um you know dealing with free agents dealing with development seeing who's going to come out of you know what college players are going to come out of school this year or graduate and you know what what's the process for for them you know when do we sign them when do we you know, get them in the mix. So there, there's always something. You mentioned Ray Shiro, who, of course, was the GM uh, in when you first came here as a player. And now Jim Rutherford's been here for a number of years, of course, uh, helped to build a back-to-back Stanley Cup championship team in 16 and 17. And I wonder what, what sort of lessons have you learned along the way in this role? What kind of thing, when you think back to when you started, oh, I, I didn't know that or... I, I feel much more comfortable about this part of it now. What do you think the biggest lessons you've learned so far? Well, I, you know what? The, one of the biggest lessons that, that Jim Jim has taught me, and it was very early on when he was here and we were just having lunch, and uh, and I think this is one of the reasons Jim gets a lot of respect around the league and people like to deal with Jim, is that he, he said, always be fair. Always try to make a good trade, a good deal that... He, is going to be good for both sides. You don't want to try to win the trade. You, you just have to do what's right for your team at the right time and don't worry about anything else. So I, I think that's one of the reasons that Jim gets a lot of respect. And I, I love working for Jim because he he's not one of these guys that micromanages. He gives me the freedom to do what I feel I can do to help the team. And you know what? I Even though I run everything by Jim for Wilkesbury. He he really lets me take ownership in that. He says it's your team, you do what you feel is right. And um you know, so I feel like I've gained a lot of uh, a lot of experience under him. When you go down to Wilkesbury and you're seeing <clears throat> I mean the Penguins are a, are a young team in and of themselves, but when you go down and you see those kids who want desperately to make that next step, what do you 
what's your role there? Are you sort of a mentor? You're sort of their boss. Uh, what's what's that like for you? And, and and where does that fit in in terms of your enjoyment to see some of those kids as they try and make that next step? Well, I, I think everybody handles the job differently because you're a different personality or you have different views. Um, I just I try to be myself and I try to you know what if there's a player that I let the coaches do what they need to do but if there's a player that I can help make a step then I'll do it I'll I'll, you know I'll I'll put my uh, my development hat back on and try to help that player because we're all you know we're all working together to just help the players I I, you know I I talk to the coaches I talk to Clark Donatelli every day and make sure that things are going well um, we try to talk as a staff down there to make sure all the guys are doing doing what they're supposed to be doing and you know we're all kind of on the same page um, but it can be frustrating for those guys because something up here needs to happen for them to get a shot there needs to be a trade there needs to be an injury something needs to happen and it can be very frustrating, and that's that's hard to see because these guys work so hard and they're so dedicated, and they they put every, it's their life. They put everything they have into it. So you want to try to keep them upbeat. We're we're very spoiled in what we're allowed to do with our team in Wilkesbury. Um, the Penguins are great to us. Uh, you know, our staff in Wilkesbury, led by Jeff Barrett's, the best and the best you could ever ask for. Um, so we try to keep them upbeat, and our, our belief is that every guy can play. Every guy can come up and help us. If that, if one, every player can come up and help us win one game, we're doing all right. right. And if they can come up and do it, kind of like the Connor Sheerys and Brian Russ and Scott Wilson and guys like that have done in the past, then we're we're doing we're doing the right things. All right, fine. Do you ever get the blades on? You put them on to get on the ice. I started last year, probably about halfway through. Uh, we have a staff game during the week, home games at one o'clock. It's called the one o'clock game. Very, very creative. And um, I did not play for a long time because I guess mentally I still thought I was Bill Guerin, the NHL player. And then when I would go out there, I was like, there's something taking over my body that would not allow me to be Bill Guerin, the NHL player. Okay. Now I'm very comfortable with Bill Guerin, the beer league guy. <laughs> like I work with Eric Heasley, who's in hockey ops with us, and I'm comfortable that Eric is faster than I am now. And um, But I can still shoot, so that's what I like to do the most, so that, it's fine. Does Mario, get, does Mario get out and play occasionally, or am I, am I misremembering stuff like that? The only time that he'll do that is when his fantasy camp is coming up, oh, and he'll have to get on the ice for like two days maybe before that to warm up. But it, that, that's, all, that's always been a treat. And, uh, but I did, um, I'm, on, I'm on Team White. And we're, I think our record is we're probably like three and three and twelve, like we're we're terrible. I, I don't you need to make a trade if you're three and twelve. Well, I I did make a trade one time. Well, no, I signed a couple of guys, and we try to play best out of th- best out of three up yeah. to five. And uh, Mark Recchi and Sergey Gonchar decided to play one day, and I said, okay. At the time, we're three and nine or whatever. And I said those two guys are on Team White, and we played. We ended up playing four games and we tied. Uh, that's not bad. No, we should. We probably should have won. I know. We probably should have won, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Very good. Well, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks for hanging out. Yeah, anytime. This is great. Thanks for having me. I never get tired uh, of talking to Bill Guerin, and I'll, and I'll just share this. Because I was in Pittsburgh, and one of the reasons I was there is uh, had a chance to sit down with Sidney Crosby, and we talked about we talked about a lot of things. But and we, uh, some of what we talked about was uh, what he went through in 2011 um, after suffering a concussion uh, at the uh, Winter Classic against Washington, and uh, we, it was a 
terrific conversation in the locker room. And it, it, it the formal part of it ended when Bill Guerin came in and uh, joined us. And uh, he walked in. He said, I've got some questions for you. <laughs> and he said, so he joined the uh, conversation. And it carried on for some time with uh, a lot of uh, laughs and a lot of stories, as, as only Bill Guerin can tell them. So that was it was kind of fun. And, but That's he's, great. Yeah, it was good stuff. And it, you know, it's interesting because Bill Garen for me is one of those guys. And there's a there, there's a, a pretty good group of you know former players who are working their way through various organizations. You know, we saw Jason Botterill leave the Penguins a couple of years ago and take over as GM in in Buffalo and doing a terrific job there. You know, Tom Fitzgerald, who was part of the Penguins um, uh, organization with Ray Shiro, was on the bench. Uh, if I'm, my memory serves me correctly, when they won the Cup in '09. Um, Bill Guerin was on that team. Uh, guys like that who are working their way through systems. And I and my guess is that at some point we're, we're going to see those guys get an opportunity to you know to to take a shot with their own teams. Do you mm-hmm. do you see it that way? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I know that both Billy Guerin and Tom Fitzgerald have been for interviews in recent years yeah. and for NHL openings. And and by the way, that's a good thing to go through as well. Um, you know, before you get your your real shot to understand what. NHL owners are going to ask you about when you go in for that process. That's a huge experience for those guys. And uh, I mean, who knows? I mean, I, you know, Jim Rutherford recently signed an extension, but obviously at some point uh, he'll probably want to step down and, 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 you know, maybe that'll be the opportunity for Billy Guerin, but um, you know, it, it, it is what also is going to fascinate me as time goes on here. And I, and I think in particular of the, the Kyle Dubas, higher here in Toronto and John Chicken in Arizona is that we're seeing a new breed of GM as well, which I think yeah. is healthy for the sport. I love seeing, I love seeing both sides of it. I, I think the organizations that are going to succeed the most are the ones that are going to embrace both the new way of thinking and, and analytics and everything else, but also, also keep that, you know, the old school and, and approach and everything else that goes with that. And, you know, I think I look at Tampa Bay, which to me is 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 the model organization. San Jose, a lot of the teams that have had huge success over the last decade, and I think they embrace all of that. They, they embrace a bit of everything. You know, Julian Breezebois, I, I think, would fit the criteria of one of the new age guys, and yet, you know, he's he's obviously got Pat Verbeek there, and and, and so there's that's what's going to fascinate me going forward is the balance of all these different philosophies melded into one. Uh, to make you know to make your organization as prepared as it can for all facets yeah no i I don't think there's any doubt uh, about that you have to yeah the days are long past where you can you can only be and i'm using my air quotes here old school or you can only be you know fancy stats i mean if you aren't if you aren't using all of your resources um you know whether it's the eye test or the stats test or whatever it is if you're not using it all then then you're then you're behind the eight ball and, and and you're right. The good teams have that kind of mix and, and are, and are looking at all of their options to, you know, to have good people in their organization and to make the right decisions in terms of whether it's drafting or developing or acquiring players or whatever it is. So there you go. All right. I think that's it. I think it's high. It's Friday. Must be, must be bloody Caesar time in Toronto. So <laughs> not yet, not yet. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, yeah, maybe in a few hours. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, as always, banner work by you, and uh, great to catch up, and uh, we'll do it again next week. And I'm happy that uh, you survived the week in Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, I, yes, I'll, yes. Well, I did, barely, but yes, it was all good. Always a good time to get there. So. All right, brother. Have a good one. All right, we'll chat next week. See you, buddy. All right, see you, man.